I think that it's going to end up as heritage planting. It's going to those gardens that you're talking about will be a piece like you get a stumpery in a in National Trust garden. My gardening friends, and welcome to episode 18 from Pot and Cloche Garden Podcasts. I'm Joff Felvick, a gardener, freelance writer, and I give talks about gardening in and around Gloucestershire in England. And in this episode, I speak to podcaster and new author Ben Dark about his latest book. I'd love, if you don't mind, to mention my new sponsor, Genus Performance Gardenware. Genus is the world's only brand of high-performance technical clothing specially designed by gardeners for gardeners. They offer a range of men's and women's gardening clothes and accessories with new styles and colours being introduced on a regular basis. I particularly love their three-season gardening trousers that I've got on now for men and women and they're worn by celebrity gardeners, head gardeners and serious gardeners all over the world. I absolutely live in mine, whether I'm gardening, dog walking or even down the pub. Take some time to have a look at what they have to offer by visiting genus.gs. Now, with no further ado, let's just get on with the episode. Today I'm with Ben Dark. He's a head gardener, an award-winning broadcaster, he's a landscape historian, and he's been described as the millennial Monty by Gardener's World magazine and the future of horticulture by Horticulture Week. He graduated with a degree in history from Bristol University and went on to study horticulture at Capel Manor before he completed his education at the Garden Museum um, with an MA in Garden and Landscape History. And uh, as a gardener, he's, he's worked for embassies, cemeteries, heritage bodies and oligarchs. That's probably over now, Ben. Um. <laughs> it certainly is. Yes. Actually, the garden the garden that um, I worked in has just been seized by the British state. Well, it should have been seized by the British state. I don't know if they've quite proved who owns it, but I know who owns it if anyone wants to come and ask me questions. And it certainly should be, um, should be taken over. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, if anybody's ever heard of you, Ben, it's because of your uh, amazing podcast, uh, The Garden Log, uh, award-winning podcast, I'll add, uh, The Garden Log. And um, you, I know you often speak to garden groups and industry events. Um, you've written for The Telegraph in the past and have featured in The Independent, Gardens Illustrated and The Financial Times. <laughs> w- welcome, Ben. <laughs> Hello, John. It's great to speak to you. People have been rather glowing about this new book that we're going to talk about, The Grove, A Nature Odyssey in 19 and a Half Front Gardens. Um, Leah Lindertz, um, well known for her gardener's almanac, um, says, Ben Dark is such a wonderful writer and The Grove drew me in from the first line. Lovely Ad Volley, who's the history buff from uh, Gardener's World, um, says the grove is overflowing with delicious nuggets of cultural, social and garden history. And I adore Ben Dark's humour and humility in equal measure. Jack Wallington, uh, we all know Jack from his book Wild About Weeds and his latest book A Greener Life. Uh, he said a heartfelt romp through the wisteria and wilderness of London's horticulturally remarkable front gardens. And then finally, Andrew O'Brien, who we all know, he's a blogger and podcaster, lovely writer. Um, 
says, fans of Ben Dark's mellifluous tones on the Garden Log podcast will be delighted by how perfectly his lyrical musings transfer to the printed page as, with infant son in tow, he invites the reader upon a series of horticultural expeditions inspired by the deceptively ordinary planting of the front gardens in a South London street. The kind of thoroughly enjoyable read where you realise late in the day that learning has snuck in by the back door, though you feel inclined to forgive the author on account of the fun you've had along the way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. Well, I'm glad someone had some fun. I, yes. had, I had fun writing it. Oh, I, I, it, it certainly seems like you did. And uh, I think uh, on somewhere in the book, uh, I think you write, any walk is an odyssey when we connect with the plants around us. Each tree or flower tells a tale. Mundane suburban shrubs speak of war and poetry, of money, fashion, love, and failure. Oh, Ben. <laughs> Good morning. How are things in Denmark? Copenhagen, to be precise. How are you doing? Things are very good here in Copenhagen. We've had a had a late rush of spring. Oh, We're yeah. almost catching up with you guys, but then I think that you've just had a bit of summer. So we we've just had a bit again. of summer, <laughs> and we're on the cusp of having another bit of winter. So uh, are you okay? <laughs> come to blast all the cherry blossom off and, yeah, and exactly. shrivel all those the, magnolias. <laughs> the magnolias are in absolute perfection. Well, they were yesterday, but I think by Thursday they'll be quite the opposite. Unfortunately, yes, yeah. Oh, well, I'll, I'll look. I'll look out for that on the. Um, on the various social media platforms. <laughs> yeah, you'll see it. Um, so Copenhagen, Ben, um, I mean, most livable city, um, I gather, in Europe. Um, it's got uh, the standards of living and the infrastructure, etc. I've had a little nosy through um, Google Earth, um, probably walked past your house on Google Earth. Um, and, uh, it's you might a, well have done. It's a beautiful looking city. I mean, a lot of water, a lot of, sort of waterfront housing, um, parks, loads of parks. There's a zoo in the middle as well that I saw. But uh, have you been getting around and about? But yes, I've been out. I've been out a lot, um, a lot into the parks, sort of getting my head around the history of a new, of a new city. Because obviously London, London's been my place for such a long time. And you build up these layers of knowledge and every single park you go to you have all these little histories and associations you, you're putting into your head and now I need to start storing them for Copenhagen so I've got a great yes. excuse to not actually do any productive work but just <laughs> to go around with my camera and my little sort of notebook taking taking in the the new city it's been yeah. great we've been here for six months now so I'm just saying people will be interested why you've ended up there what's taken you to Copenhagen um, I my 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 wife's job has taken me here, so I have I've followed in the baggage train, as it were. <laughs> <laughs> so, Ben, the Grove, a nature odyssey in nineteen and a half front gardens. We'll talk about the half later, um, but effectively, you're talking about nineteen plants. I mean, you refer to it um, in 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 the piece I've already written, where you're sort of referring to mundane suburban shrubs. I mean, I know you 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 talk about things like um, buddleia. Um, uh, red valerian and privet, don't you? Um, things that we often take for granted. Yes, because because I wanted to be able to tell stories that that we can all tell as we walk along the streets. The idea was that it's the the whole world, the history of horticulture, the history of my involvement in horticulture, seen from one fairly ordinary pavement. And the nice thing is that the the stories in the book could have been told on on a hundred thousand different streets across the city. And what I found really nice about writing about these commonplace plants is that you have 
so many other writers to draw on. Everyone's written about Privet and Budlier, no matter if they hate it or adore it. And so you can weave those those sort of great horticultural luminaries into the text. Whereas if I was writing about a, a newly discovered little little alpine thing growing in a crack, then I'd be able to describe it and it'd be very nice, but I don't think I'd be able to fill 300 pages with a description of its its petals. But <laughs> but talking about the, the the snobbery and the beauty and the eccentricity of suburbia is it's just much more fun, I think. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, I mean, talking about Privet, one thing that I came across very quickly in that chapter, um, which, you know, initially you think, what's this got to do with Privet? Perhaps you could explain, but you talk about a dot of paint, a dot of paint on the pavement outside number 71. I mean, <laughs> how, how did you bring that into, <laughs> into the chapter? <laughs> the dot of paint... Um, was a fantastically fortuitous find. It's a dot of paint left by an artist called Tom Phillips, who is uh, a Royal Academician. And he does eccentric, very local artworks. And one of his artworks is called 20 Sites in Years, which is where he goes around the local area of Camberwell and takes a picture on a set day every single year at the same time, every single day, and compiles this database. It's been going since 1973. These very boring, quotidian places. And the dot of paint was the marker that happened to be on the little street that I decided to write about, where he was to stand and take one of his photos. And um, I came to it because I've been writing about the road markings anyway, which I think are a fascinating piece of our, our urban life. These little hieroglyphics that we can't quite understand, but, but let us have clues as to what's going on underneath our feet. And I've been looking at them anyway. And then to find this extra dot was just a wonderful piece of good fortune. So obviously I looked up Tom Phillips' pictures and I had... 50 years worth of shots of a very, very ordinary view, a Victorian terrace house with a lamppost and a plane tree and a privet hedge behind. And that chapter is the result of exploring the, um, the weird hidden depths of the, this everyday picture. <laughs> so I'd, um, I'd originally started focusing on the tree because it's very, it's very fun to see a tree age in front of us. Everyone who's um, who's gone to to sort of caress the the gnarled and knotty stem of something or other, you want to know when did these when did these marks start appearing? What caused that weird outgrowth that's now the size of a small sheep? When did it start? And you can do that by looking through Tom's photos on this on this plane tree. Um, I think you and, refer uh, to I think you refer to the, the, this changing plane, tr plane tree a little bit like a candle at a dinner party. Um, obviously, the candle at the dinner party is rather speeded up. How it changes its shape and morphs into something completely different by the end of the night. Um, but you can see this in these photos happening over a period of fifty years. Exactly, right, exactly right. I'm a, I'm a horrible one for for the end of of dinner parties when I've had too much red wine just to sort of get transfixed by the growing nobbles and bobbles on a candlestick, and it's the exact same pleasure in in seeing these nobbles and bobbles develop on these photographs. I think I describe it as a sort of visual umami, a sort of rich and, and satisfying flavour, and yeah. it really does. It really does have that. <laughs> now, we're to, for some strange reason, we're talking about a plane tree in the chapter about privet, but what 
really drew your attention was the very fact that we're talking about this plane tree getting older and more gnarly, um, whereas the privet, which was probably exactly the same age as the plane tree, looked young and fresh. <laughs> it, looked like, it looked like it could have gone in two years ago when the photograph from 2020, uh, from 2018 or from 1975 or from somewhere in the 80s, it was unchanging. It was almost an immortal plant. And I didn't notice this until I'd flicked through the, the series of pictures four or five times from start to finish, that, that it never changed. It was the same plants sitting happily in the same place. Sometimes they're a little bit bigger. Sometimes someone had been a bit more zealous with their clipping, but they were seemingly immortal. No, shine of, no sign of aging at all on them. And... Um, it was kind of a thrill to see that when we go around, when we go around our neighborhoods, I'm, I'm certain that you do the same. You're looking for original plantings and you're saying, oh, is that a 1930s magnolia or is it from the fifties the wave of magnolias? And here was something that I had previously completely overlooked that was, uh, uh, an inherit, that was a heritage part of the street somehow. It was fantastic. Yeah. And of course, that's the very reason why we all, constantly rejuvenate old shrubs don't we we're always taking out a third of the wood or so on just to keep them young exactly i think that we, we don't think of it as as pollarding on a privet hedge because it's covered in leaves and we don't really see it although it's not covered here we're just that little bit further north so our privet denudes in the in the winter uh, yeah. in, in in copenhagen but um but we don't think that we're actually we're we're essentially pollarding these things every single growing season and when we when we talk about hazel or hornbeam and the rejuvenating powers of coppicing or pollarding. We're all very well aware of it, but we don't think of it in our, in our hedges. We're doing the same thing. We're taking off those, those um, apical buds and redistributing the hormones and keeping them in a state of, of sort of juvenilia, which, is, um, which does strange things to a plant's body and keeps it eternally young, <laughs> much like what happens to, to humans if you chop off their... Anyway, we went. We went. <laughs> I'll try that later. See if I can regrow a, a young arm. Yes. Well, yeah. <laughs> it's, not, um, it's not the arm you chop off, but uh, anyway. <laughs> now, um, again, in the same chapter where you've sort of woven in plane trees and, and artists, um, you go on to uh, uh, write about um, the cash to be made selling clones of plants, and you, you point out the National Trust. Um, has done this often with uh, sort of their money spinning collections in their shops. Um, well, I don't, I don't think they've actually done it. I think that's a, that would be a, oh, a good money spinner for them. That's exactly what you could. said. Yes. There is, there is a, um, there is a sort of the, the, the myth of the Sissinghurst rose. This was the first thing that Vita and Harold planted before they'd even signed the deeds to Sissinghurst. And think if they go to the Sissinghurst gift shop and say, well, this is clonally identical. You have some of Vita's plant. You'd make a killing. And then I was wondering how many people had decided that they would do this on, under their own steam and had snuck off with a few little bits of, of Vita's rose <laughs> in their pockets or handbags, scratching well, there, the thorns against their thighs. There's a very good paragraph where you finish off, after Vita Sackville West climbing rose that you've just mentioned, I would suggest adding Paul McCartney's privet to the range, taking us neatly from the White Garden to the White Album. Brilliant sentence that time. <laughs> I bet you uh, punched the air after you wrote that. That's fantastic. <laughs> and incidentally, telling the story of a century... Tell, so there's a privet hedge outside Paul McCartney's original um, home, the family home. Yes, another National Trust property, very different from Sissinghurst, which is on Fourth Lynn Road up, up in, the, um, in the Liverpool suburbs. And 
I don't know if you've been, but it's been very, very carefully restored to a facsimile of what it would have been like in the in the late fifties when the McCartneys were there. So someone's gone out and bought the exact brand of very off-putting beigey gold Hoover to leave in the downstairs cupboard, and they've gone out and found all of these all of these sort of quiche items, and then you um. And then you notice that actually there is something left apart from the brickwork that would be original to the project. And that is the hedge. The hedge is the one that would have brushed McCartney's fingers as he walked in and out. It's the same hedge that's in the background to the very, very first Beatles publicity shots, which were shot on the same road. And I think that's, I think that's quite, it's just quite nice thing if you're one of these people who likes to collect the locks of hair from poets heads and thinks that there is greatness conferred by an object that has touched greatness then you can go there and rub yourself against the privet well let's move on ben from uh, privet to something that's actually a little bit more timely because we're all just about to experience cherry blossom uh in in the uk a lot of us already have it some don't quite yet um and this is one of my favourite uh, chapters in the book. It really is. It's beautifully written. Um, I, I've sort of, I, I made copious notes about it because it was so interesting. And I, I really likened it to sort of a, uh, you know, the DNA double helix where things swirl around each other, um, <laughs> uh, sort of, but come together as one ultimately. Uh, and uh, also I, I thought it was a bit like um, that well-known um, coronation tune, um, the, the Queen of Sheba, and then I thought, no, it's actually, <laughs> it's, it's actually a bit, a little bit more like um, Nimrod from the um, Enigma Variations, you know, Ed, Edward Elgar, and uh, you get all this little uh, wafting coming in and coming out, waving around. Uh, sorry, it's making it sound rather, rather dull. <laughs> no, um, you're weaving things in and out, and it, 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 it's coming and going. It's fantastic, and then suddenly, bang! It, it hits you as uh, as, as the uh, um, the hairs on the back of your neck come up and and that's exactly how this this um chapter works i absolutely love it um so we've probably got three or four pages where you're you're um working your way up to uh, uh up to actually talking about about the these cherry trees um and um the first one or one of the first ones you mentioned which is one of my favorites um and probably a lot of people's least favorite is that, that <laughs> you know what i'm gonna say of that, course that, that that fantastic cherry tree called kanzan the big double blousy kanzan that we see in streets or some of us had in our gardens uh maybe in the 70s or well maybe now uh, <laughs> tell us more about that it's a magnificent tree and it's actually it's a very good example of what i was talking about earlier about the tree that everyone's had an opinion on because you really could not escape that but in particularly early in the 20th century when it really got rolled out to all of the the new builds and the new towns and the poor old tree it gets attacked by garden writers so vita vita sagler west does not like it at all because it is redolent of the um of, of the new lower middle class which is which is for all of her brilliance not a a group that she has much sympathy with and it gets attacked 
by cherry experts and the kind of people who who venerate the single flowered beautiful perfect uh, wild cherry as a as an example of chastity and purity who regard this as a a sort of a blousy suspicious character with far too much makeup on her and not only does it get attacked by writers it gets attacked by us gardeners as well because of course it's a pretty big spreading tree once it gets going but when it's seen on the nursery it's got a lovely, it's, well, it's always grafted, but it's got a lovely sort of vase-shaped thing. And it looks like, oh, just the thing for, for putting in auntie's back garden. That it comes up massive and thick and bulbous with all sorts of swellings where you've got those Frankenstein joins between the grafts and people climb up and hack bits off it. And so you see it in the strangest, most beaten about shapes. But it is still, when you see it, when you go past one, or, or on an old street and it's growing out of the hedge that surrounded it at the base, it still can stop you in your tracks. It's yeah. an, a fantastic, fantastic sight. Christopher Lloyd had a, had a, a, a relationship with Kanzan for most of his life, but sort of changed his attitude towards it, didn't he? He did. He did. It's one of the nice things, I think, about his writing, because he wrote for such a long time and with such honesty and, and a personal take on the gardening. And he wasn't afraid to change his opinions. So early on in his career, he was taking that rather contrarian approach, almost a direct counterblast to the people like like uh, Vita Sackville West and saying, we should love it because it's big and blousy and brilliant. And then as he got older, he sort of put a uh, time to put away childish things spin on it and recognised his past fondness, but said now it was rather too much for him. Not because of the, the blousiness and its associations with, with suburbia, but because he thought that he saw a hint too much uh, violet in its pink. <laughs> he, was, he was sensitive to these things, very, very good at reading colour, and thought that a, a purer pink might be better and more dignified for his dotage. Uh, in the UK, of course, we all look forward to uh, our cherries coming out at this time of year, but in... in um... Japan. I mean, it's almost like a religion, isn't it? Yes, yes, famously. And it is, it is, uh, uh, well, not, it's not exactly a religion, but it has been used in the same ways that religion has done uh, as sort of unifying things with the population, with all the good and th bad things that that brings. It's a fantastically interesting story. And in, in my book, I quite draw quite heavily on the work of another writer called Noika Abe, who wrote uh, a brilliant book about Cherry Ingram, Cherry's the nickname, it's Collingwood Ingram, um, and his efforts to save the, the various endemic cultivars of the cherry tree that would have graced each little Japanese village before the, the main uh, clone that we see now when we, go to, when we go to Japan. I say we, I've never been to Japan, I'd love to. It's on my, it's on my dream countries to visit. But that, that great clone of the, the, the Yoshino cherry um, swept away what was quite a diverse group of cherries beforehand. And Oka's book is about, is about the efforts of an Englishman from outside Tunbridge Wells to preserve these ancient cultivars. Yeah, now, um, Cherry Ingram, Ingram uh, Collingwood Ingram, is sitting cross-legged with um, Nyoko Abe, um, drinking tea. And Nyoko says, um, he shows basically Cherry Ingram a picture of a, of a cherry that his great-grandfather had painted 130 years previously. Um, it was a cherry that had, as far as they knew, gone extinct. I mean, it's disappeared. It's disappeared. Uh, they used to see it near Kyoto. Um, and he said, I can't find it anywhere, to which Cherry Ingram says... Uh, this is the cherry that I've got growing in my garden in Kent. <laughs> it's, a, 
It's a fantastic story. It's a fantastic story. That wasn't um that wasn't uh Noka he was telling that story to. Oh. It was he was telling it to the great the great cherry expert. I, I can't quite remember his name. It was in, in um in the oh, say Saku Finatsu. Exactly, say Saku Finatsu. Yes. Um and yes, who unrolled this scroll of great reverence. And um yes, for him to be able to say, by Jove, we have it there <laughs> was quite interesting. It's funny because then, then, then he did make huge efforts to to um, reintroduce this cherry and, and largely succeeded. But there was a lot of pushback from patriotic Japanese uh, people who thought that it was an insult for an Englishman to be bringing back this great cultivar, and that actually, if they were left to their own devices, they'd certainly find it still surviving somewhere. But but um, they were um, the the problem. The reason why these cultivars were being lost so quickly in Japan is that they were grafted onto a very weak rootstock, a very short-lived rootstock. Uh, here we use Prunus avium and they, they tend to go on for quite a long time. So, so you can afford 20 years of neglect and then come back to your cultivars. But there the trees were, were dying out rather more quickly. So it was a matter of, uh, a matter of some urgency to find these, these old cultivars and bring them and bring them back. Moving on from one timely flowering tree to another, let's go on to magnolia. Um, we've already touched on that and the fact they've all they're all looking at, at the absolute peak and we're, <laughs> we're, due, we're due to get a wonderful frost in it or certainly colder weather in a few days time <laughs> you um, will you will as soon but, as you start saying don't they look lovely then somebody's yeah. going to come down and blast them now you, you'd think they'd be able to protect themselves from what you wrote and from what I've learned I didn't know this or if I ever did I've forgotten it magnolias are thermogenic and their blooms produce real cellular heat and this is thought to be a reward for pollinating beetles and encouragement for them to linger longer. No, for them to linger. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, they need to just turn up the thermostat a little bit in a few days' time and survive this cold weather. But tell us about this, this, think, this you, thermogenic process. You'd think they could do that, wouldn't you? You'd think that we, <laughs> could, we could harness that somehow to make one that, um, that can keep its outer petals from going brown in, the, in a bit of frost. They... Um, it's it's an amazing it's an amazing technique. I mean, it's fa famously famously magnolias predate the bees, so they are beetle pollinated as a group, and they do generate this, this cellular action which makes them warm inside. And then they've got those wonderfully insulating thick petals. So if you're a little beetle who is after not only a, a bit of polleny food but somewhere warm to rest up for the night, then you head to the magnolias. And you can see these, by the way, if you look at thermogenic images of the of the, the forests where, where magnolias are growing over in over in China. And um, so you stay there for the night and then you go out in the morning and you go and try and find another magnolia flower. And the fascinating thing about magnolias is that they have female phase and male phase of their flowering. And there are two distinct peaks of heat. So the first peak draws the beetle in for, for, for collecting the pollen. The second draws it for depositing the pollen. pollen. It's, a, it's, an absolutely, it's an absolutely amazing mechanism. And it's just wonderful to think of it going on outside our houses is this little, little cellular evolutionary miracle. And um, we're just wandering around taking, taking photos for Instagram. Next time I have a thermal camera handy, I'll wander around our <laughs> local streets and see what else is glowing in the dark. <laughs> I wonder what you could find. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, I'll, I'll bail you out if you get if you get done for prowling. Okay, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on from the magnolia to roses, which 
well, I don't think many of us have uh, got out in our garden yet. But this is all. This is a, a chapter where you sort of mention your brush with celebrity, with the world of television, and. <laughs> uh, um, so basically, you, you, you'd been to uh, college, I think it was, and, and you'd been spotted, you'd been talent spotted. And uh, after a few terms, I had a meeting with a television company, you say, and um, that you go along and, and you, you, you meet them. Um, but they want to know what your USP was. You know what what was so <laughs> what was so special about Ben Dark? And um, you say you must have looked a little bit blank because they elaborated. You know, are you the rebel gardener? Are you the motorbiking gardener? Are you the northern gardener or the tattooed gardener? Um, you know, what makes you different from the others we're going to see? What's your thing? And. Um, <laughs> You had a penchant for uh, collarless granddad shirts, didn't you? And you, you thought I did the, at the time. That was the only <laughs> thing you could think of, really, to suggest you. Well, I don't think you actually suggested. You thought of that maybe you know you were the collarless gardener. But um, did did uh, did anything come of come of? No, that it didn't. Interviews? No, it didn't. <laughs> what what came of it was that that. Um, that wonderful television-y phrase, we'll be in touch. We'll be in touch about the screen test, they said. And uh, no, I've never done the screen test. I've never oh, been tested dear. for the screen. It's, um, it's funny. Yes, no, I, I had nothing to say at all. I think my, I just must have opened my mouth and closed it a few times and come across as the, the goldfish gardener or something like that. <laughs> but, um, it didn't, so, didn't go anywhere. So no, still no, still no show for me. Okay, well, that, that's useful information for anybody who's on the cusp yeah, of, oh, the, of their television career. Definitely, you know, we'll definitely. be in touch. We'll be in touch. They might as well just go off and get a job at the local nursery <laughs> at that point. <laughs> go, go and start a podcast. That's what yeah, I suggest. That's a good idea. Yeah. Um, while, we're, while we're talking about roses, um, you, you, you talk about uh, an, an interesting story um, where you're in a, in a cemetery. Um, I think you're um, working with some hybrid tea roses or something, aren't you? Um, hybrid tea is the sort of thing that we, we tend to see less and less of these days. Many of us back in the, oh, probably 25 years ago, you were used to seeing beds devoted to hybrid teas, um, pruned down to their ankles in the winter yeah. um, with, with uh, manure all mounded up around them on these little island beds. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we see less and less of them. What do, what do you think of the future of the hybrid tea? I think that it's going to end up as heritage planting. It's going to those gardens that you're talking about will be a piece like you get a stumpery in a, in a National Trust garden because it is a really, really distinctive style of gardening. And it's also very, very, it's very indicative of a certain type of gardener. And it's the, the get home from work, proud of my house, proud of my family, proud of my garden. Um, and I think that just as just as sort of the rockery is edging from being sort of passe to being almost a quirky little little feature in the corners of our national trust gardens with a little signboard explaining them i think that maybe we'll get that for the the hybrid tea garden the hybrid tea itself i think will live on and probably see a revival it's not as you know it's not um it had terrible, terrible problems with with the various rose diseases and things. But people are still working on them. People are still breeding them. There's still there's still a lot of research going into into the modern rose, particularly because it's used a lot in in floristry. So there are much better cultivars now. They don't have all the problems that we we associate with them. So I think they'll probably they'll probably return to our gardens, but in a more relaxed manner than that 
magnificent old, as you say, mounded, mounded earth. I was um, walking around, around Dulwich, where, near where the book is set, and there is still one garden that is magnificently old-fashioned, mounded beds, beautifully edged grass paths, wallflowers uh, and tulips below the bare cut-back roses, and then roses later in the summer. It's, it, the, it, the garden itself is built on an old bombsite with still one of the prefab houses that they put up in the, um, in the very early 50s there. And the garden is still a 50s garden. It's amazing. If, if anyone's ever walking up Lordship Lane in, in East Dulwich, up the hill there, they should look out for it on their right-hand side because it's really, really worth visiting. I'm convinced that at some point we are going to start to see gardens a little bit like you've described that we, we've all got those books um, from the 30s and 40s um, where uh, bushels of this and bushels of that are recommended to spread on your vegetables or whatever, <laughs> you know, road sweepings as they refer to them and, and so on. Um, and you have, a, you have a bed on the left-hand side with a concrete path next to it. You have a shed at the end with a, a vegetable garden in front of it, an area of lawn, all dahlias at one side, you know, um, for instance. Um, yeah, and I'm, I, I think at some point people are going to come back to the beautiful simplicity of that. And also um, the very fact that it, it looks, it doesn't look designed. <laughs> no, it, exactly. I think that I think that eventually there will be a backlash against concrete slabs set against naturalistic grasses and, and that sort of things. And we will go for that kind of thing because there will be, it will go beyond nostalgia into being cool again. And also, it's a, it's quite fun. You, you, there's a fantasy element in it. We all want to be a, a a 1930s dad with a pipe and a sweater vest out with our <laughs> cylinder mower on a Saturday, nodding hello to all of the other dads out with their cylinder mowers, keeping our grass <laughs> clean. I think um, I think as long as the lawns are small enough for little little push-alongs that we only get the click 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 of the <laughs> of the blades, it'd be quite fun. Yeah. I'll look forward to that, Ben. Look forward to that. That can be yeah. your. I'll let you have that one. That can be your first Chelsea garden. Um, oh gosh, yeah, that would be good, wouldn't it? <laughs> I mean, actually, it's probably been done. You often see people with sort of a wartime gardens and things like that with Anderson yeah. shelters, don't you? Um, yeah, not you do. You do, and the, yeah. when, and as as the dahlias come back, I don't think it would make that much of an impact. Mm-hmm. I wonder what, ne- what what do you think the next the next dahlia will be? The next plant brought back from the uh, oh. Well, I, I know in the last two or three years, people have been trying, I'm convinced, to make uh, conifers more, more popular. Ah, There's been okay. several articles from time to time, and I think, here we go, here we go, this is liftoff, but it doesn't quite And it never takes up. off. No. Yeah. Um, I think perhaps with the, the trend towards sort of naturalistic planting or plants that have um, an ecological value, um, many of them perhaps don't fit in with with those ideas, um, but who knows? Who knows? Um, yeah, yeah well, I've been I've been predicting the return of the shrubbery for for fifteen years, and it never happens. I think that um, the, the high Victorian shrubbery, um, it, I don't know. I suppose it's just too much work, and it's too too easily out of control. I think the plant that's going to come back in the daily way is going to be the chrysanthemum. I'm convinced that that we're going to get a, a rush of of chrysanthemums and that's the same plant in the same way that it was um you know in all of those victorian public parks where you'd have your your mum house your chrysanthemum house and you'd have all the local the local the local families growing growing the mums <laughs> and bringing them along to show i think that they could be they could be due for a nice revival so yeah um, i think so yeah. it's interesting i think the problem is 
horticulture is very slow to adapt. Um, and I think what drove it home for me the other night, I was reading a very old book. I don't know if you ever read it, Ben. It's called You and Non-You. Yes, 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 of course. I mean, it's it's based on the letter U, as in yeah. U for upper class and non U yeah. for non upper class, but they spelt it U Y E W. And it's by a chap called um, James Bartholomew, I think. And he talks of plants that are, you know, U and <laughs> plants that are non U. Um, and in those days, I mean, when he wrote it, I think it was the late. 80s uh, he refers to you know rosemary Veery would obviously love this plant because it's very you um but uh, <laughs> then he refers to people like peter seabrook uh, would love this plant because it's very non-you you know uh, okay uh, and, and but what is striking is how very little of those attitudes in my experience have changed you know we still and the, and the words you use in conversations um, to, to sort of display your understanding of horticulture and what is right and what is wrong. You know, you've only got to slip a little something in and people think, oh, right, okay, he's a proper gardener. He, he, knows, what <laughs> he knows what he's talking about. Um, uh, you, uh, you know, uh, and I suppose for years it was the use of something like, let's say, um, Verbena bonariensis, which was very you for quite some time and to some extent may well still be. I think people have just got a little bit bored of it appearing all the time and certainly you're yeah. seeing, seeing less and less of it in Chelsea um but uh uh yeah uh, let's go back to what we're talking about I just think horticulture is very slow to move because what was said in James Bartholomew's book you and non you um I would say 90% of it still applies and those still those attitudes still uh, still prevalent in, in horticulture yeah I'm sure I'm sure you're right I'm sure you're right there there is a there is a sort of snobbishness baked in i think it's got slightly better i think that um i, I certainly remember when i was starting out it was still in the, the tail end of the great aristocrats garden where you wouldn't celebrate the gardener at all yes. i think now there's much more of a of a, of a rising status particularly for the head gardener and it would be strange i remember holding umbrellas for for dowager um, duchesses of blah 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 who were, were the great gardener and you think well this this dowager duchess hasn't planted a thing in their life and now i think you get more of a celebration of the um of the garden itself but there is still that that certain snobbishness and it's interesting the way you talk about language and the way that people instantly are able to classify whether you are a sort of neophyte after cheerfulness or whether you are an expert after after some other effect and some of it is selfishness but i think some of it's a natural as we spend more time in an area your interests become a bit more niche and weird they, they talk about this um actually well they talk about it about pornography but they also talk about it in music <laughs> in, in music people who have been around the electronic music scene for example their tastes will veer and become even more minimal and, and discordant and they will be searching for even sort of rarer breaks until suddenly you listen to to what your friend who's who's very into these things is listening to and it sounds like just what this isn't music and sometimes you get that with with people who've really really thought about plants for a very long time people who've been garden designers for 20 or 30 years their tastes become so sort of refined and so after the the, the essential matter of the planting their plantings looked at by an outsider suddenly become like what on earth that that's not a garden that's a fallen over broken tree with a with a with a bit of um of hellebore growing underneath what what is it <laughs> um, and um and sometimes 
that isn't snobbishness. Sometimes that's just that that's just um, strange aesthetic pursuits leading to to strange aesthetic results. And sometimes, of course, there's a there's a there's an attempt to uh, to put people off by by talking about it in a certain way. I hope I hope that we can be we can be more inclusive. But I know I I'm I'm just as guilty. I'm always um talking about just uh you know your 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 wild and naturalistic effects and things like that which which i think a lot of a lot of the time when they're talked about what, what they're talking about is we want to create the impression of of raw nature and with it vast space and that's something that most of us just don't have so we can't create that effect and that's something that i think that a plant to go back to when you mentioned before something like a verbena bonariensis is very good for because it's a plant that can bring that that sort of element of, of wildness and uncontrained unpredictability the way it gets when it really gets happy and gets going and branches all over the place and leans over other plants and you can see through it and see bits through it but you can still plant it in a border a foot and a half wide on a new build estate it brings some of that that unpredictability and, and wildness and um, removes some of the the obvious hand of man in the smallest spaces which i think is i think it's useful we we need plants like that <laughs> And we've mentioned a few of the, the plants that are in, in the book, but for anybody interested, you, you talk about um, lawns, London pride, iris, um, tulips, grapes, grapevines, um, camellias, apples, box and pelagoniums. Um, but let's get back to that mis- missing chapter, the, the, the half a garden, the, uh, <laughs> a nature odyssey in 19 and a half front gardens. Now, that half is actually your sort of desert island garden, isn't it? That's right. It's my, it's my, um, what would I do if I was here? And I think this is again, something that you'll do. And what, what most of your listeners will probably do when you're walking along a road and you see a garden that's been woefully neglected or worse, turned into a car parking space. And you think, what would I do with that house? How would I make that porch look right? And normally the answer is, well, I'd put a wisteria there. And this is more of a development of that from, um, from what I would do were I to have one of these, these houses on Grove Park, the road I talk about. And it's, it's the result of a year's worth of wandering up and down the road, fantasizing about what I would put in. <laughs> well, Ben, it's an absolutely amazing book I, I honestly love it uh what well, you know i jumped around all over the place i didn't read it from the start to the end i'm afraid i went from one chapter to the last to back to the middle all over the place um, <laughs> oh, i like that i think that's i think that's a nice way to read it i'm hoping that it's something that you can just pick up and go into because because yeah, i could put quite a lot of work into sort of each paragraph page and sentence i think that you could just leave it around pick it up and say oh my god that's an interesting thing about something <laughs> so yeah. so i encourage that kind of reading style now talking of um plant snobbery etc there's one chapter i still haven't read and that's the one on camellias um <laughs> i'm <laughs> They leave me a little bit cold. (laughs) Let me add, I will read it, and I'm hoping that you'll change my attitude towards them completely. (laughs) Um, But, uh, yeah, I feel a little bit embarrassed even mentioning that in public, but uh, uh, something something that does nothing for me. (laughs) But that's... that's, um... That's interesting. And maybe we should just delve into your psyche and wonder what a camellia did to you once. What do you associate with them? That's what I'm looking at in that chapter. I'm looking at the various associations. For me, they have very personal associations because I used to work at Chiswick House. And as you know, there's a great collection of camellias there under glass. And it was my job then to 
get the camellias ready for their camellia festival that they have in, in um, February. And anyone who's grown under glass, particularly grown big shrubs under glass, will know that what you'd get is lovely, healthy, fast-growing, sappy plants and a billion aphids to come with them. And then you get the, the honeydew and then you get the sooty mould. So my job was to scrub individually each leaf on this venerable row <laughs> of camellias. It's a very, very satisfying job to do for a few hours. It's almost like pre pressure washing because, you know, sooty mold doesn't actually affect the tissue of the leaf at all. And particularly on a shiny leaf like a camellia's one, you can almost push it off with your thumb. And when you've done a leaf, it shines, it's emerald green and bright. But when you're doing it for a month, <laughs> you, get, <laughs> you get definite ingrained associations. And so the, the camellia chapter is probably an attempt to replace these uh, months of backbreaking scrubbing work with, with warm water and a, and a sponge with other associations of the camellia. So I'm exploring different ways. And actually, I'm talking about the camellia. If you look at, if you look at your um, sort of chinoiserie and the, the introduction of the camellia into to Western art, it's not the camellia we think of, that, that blobby bush with almost, um, almost the camellias painted on, like in, like in the old Alice in Wonderland cartoon, the old Disney one where they're daubing on painting the roses different colors and they look like that. The camellia of, 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 um, of Chinese and Japanese art is a, is a spare thing. It's a, it's, a, it's a twisting branch with a few leaves and a flower and then a, and then a, a white eye bird sitting perched on it. And um, so I'm celebrating that effect in camellias more than the bush that could be just cherry laurel with a load of fake roses stuck to it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but there are, the, the camellia has so many wonderful, wonderful associations. Uh, the story of its origin myths, obviously the, 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 the story of, um, of, of La Boheme is, is based on the Dema Camellia, which is a, a great story where the camellia is the um, symbol for, for all sorts of things. You've got the, the courtesan who holds white camellias for for 22 days a month and then read for five and the author tells you uh, i don't know why i couldn't possibly tell you why and the audience oh, oh. Um, and it's just there's there's all sorts of things it's been used for in the in the past and that's an exploration of that and it finishes with uh, a call to people like you Joff, people who don't have positive associations with camellia to come up to the road that i'm talking about and do a tour of the various camellias that there are there and i list ones that you can see at various places on the road and ride there on the 252 bus and see if you can get your mind changed i think you probably could i think we'll you're selling it, was... it to me <laughs> <laughs> oh i'm i'm not really though the trouble is that you could do that for any plant that's the that's the joy of writing a book like that there's a there's a there's a billion associations out there and it's finding which ones to pick and, and weave in and which ones to leave out generally yeah. you leave out all of the old um victorian sentimental language of flowers stuff because they just <laughs> just make people sick but, um, <laughs> anything else can go in you're encouraging me to uh, go down to the grove and have a look at these camellias. Um, but you're heading that way yourself. You're in Copenhagen at the moment. You're heading to London soon, aren't you? You're on a whirlwind tour of the UK. I am. I am. I'm coming. I'm coming down uh, to talk in a few bookshops and do some signings and stuff and finishing up at the Garden Museum on the 8th of April. Yeah, that's for, 2022 uh, for anybody that's listening <laughs> in the future. Of course, yeah, podcast <laughs> for the ages. This is, um, yes, 2022. Uh, so I'm going down there to have a, an evening of conversation with Ben Dark.
And and that's Alice Vincent you're talking to there, I think, isn't it? Yes, yes, he's very good, very good. She'll she'll get lots of good questions, I'm sure. Yeah. So uh, Ben, if anybody wants to know a little bit more about you, where can they go? Do you have a website or social media, etc.? I do, I do. I have a website. It's not really very effectively updated, but you can go there. I think that's bendark.com, or you can follow me on social media at at Ben's Garden on Twitter, and then I think I'm at. Ben underscore dark underscore on Instagram, but just just give me a search, and you can yeah. find some pictures of the the plants I'm talking about. And, and and even though you're not in the UK anymore, you're still bringing your podcast out from time to time. <laughs> from time to time, Is yeah. That right? yeah. It comes out. It comes out now more about once every three weeks or so. Okay, yeah. It was the podcast. The podcast was life of a head gardener on an estate, which was my um my my previous vocation one i'll go back to i think but at the moment it's it's observations on plants from copenhagen and bits and pieces of gardening i've just started actually work as a volunteer at a big garden here which is a bliss it's bliss to be the one just told go and do some gardening while <laughs> running around making sure everyone's happy and <laughs> satisfied in their roles do, do you find the um the plants vary much from what you're used to in the UK? Because I know you're on the same latitude as uh, what, uh, Glasgow uh, and, and even Moscow. So you, you, it's obviously colder, but does that affect uh, the plants you're seeing in the gardens? A little bit. It's colder in terms of the, I mean, it's, it's more Glasgow than Moscow in temperature because we still have that coastal, that coastal effect here. Um, the plants are similar, very, very similar, but they are later to do things. So they are uh, going to they're going to be three two or three weeks behind already, and I think that spring is going to be extended. It's going to last longer. The snowdrops were out for for a very long time now for six seven weeks, where they might have been over a few weeks earlier in the UK. And um, otherwise, there's going to we, we won't get we won't get the tender stuff that I was able to grow in London sadly but i'm hoping that there might be some more um stuff that i can draw from those those scottish gardens i'd love to be able to grow i can't remember which one it is you know that, that wonderful sort of fire flower that grows up through the scottish hedges it's a um it's oh a, tropiolum a yeah the tropiolum um i have to grow that in the garden yeah. here but it's um because i've never ever been able to get that going mm. Down south, so maybe I can do that, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, I Otherwise, think, yeah, I don't know if it's is it hardiness or is it just a little bit of a touchy plant to grow. Um, I've only ever seen it once or twice, sort of scrambling through a yew hedge. It's, I think it's 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 not hardiness because it's it's really really associated with with Scotland. You see it, you see it in those Scottish gardens, and they're they're colder than we have in London. So I don't know what it what it particularly likes. Maybe. What I wouldn't expect it to be the long, the long days, because it doesn't. It's from the far, far further south. Anyway, we'll we'll, we'll give it a go and yeah. see if we can do it. <laughs> um, the other plants. Well, when in my volunteer job, it was go and dig out this car park bed full of Cotoniaster horizontalis. I was like, oh, I've, I've done something like this before. <laughs> not, <laughs> and there's a plant. There's a plant that I often mention in my garden talks. Cotoniaster horizontalis. I think it's underrated. Um, could have made it into your book. Um, it could have. It could have. Make know, the case, Jeff. Make the case. Well, you get fantastic 
unnoticeable flowers in the spring, you know, tiny little white flowers, and which is why your cotoneaster is smothered in all sorts of mm. insects. Um, you get the berries, obviously, later on in the year. And actually, not always, but quite often, you get amazing autumn colour as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, blood red leaves on it. And plus, because of the, 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 the way they grow um, in that sort of fishbone form, um, they create, you know, a great um, habitat for nesting birds and, and so on. Uh, and they're quite they're, they're quite well behaved. You plant them up against the wall; they stick to the wall rather than flooding out yeah. across your driveway. So I think they're very, a lot going for them. They're very useful, and I think that the because we're obviously we're not we're not creating wilderness as gardeners. We're creating something that is almost architectural in its effect. We are we're creating something that's related to the human. And um, Cadeniaster horizontalis is brilliant for blending architecture and plants, which is an effect that's so pleasing. Have you ever seen it grown on the risers of the steps? It's quite, it's quite no. effective. Yeah. So you have a steps going up with, with borders on both sides and you plant, you plant it and you grow it in sort of Tetris L shapes from the ground, then a lot, all along the riser, one from each side, so it meets up against the, in, in the middle. It looks really, really effective. Oh, wow, you, yeah. You, um, yeah, and, and so sort of have berries growing there under each step as you're walking up a stone flight of steps. Yeah, <laughs> it's really, oh, no, it's really sounds, nice. Sounds lovely, yeah. Yeah. Um, so we, we, we can sort of reinvent these plants, can't we, and uh, find new, uh, new uses for them. Yeah, particularly, particularly in, in shrubs like that, you're always seeing someone who's done a new strange espalier to something you wouldn't expect. Yeah. Espalier yeah. gower or something like that. It's, um, yeah, yeah, there's lots, lots to still discover. That's the good thing about horticulture. Exactly. Well, look, Ben, we, we've almost veered away from the book and we could go on forever. Um, I know you've probably got a, a tranche of uh, open sandwiches to make. For your family to, <laughs> for your family to make exactly, today. <laughs> exactly. If, if they come home and the pickled herring is not laid on the rye bread, they would be held to face. So I, yeah. I better get off. Better good, get buttering. Good luck with your tour um, when you're back over in the UK. Um, good luck with the book. I, I mean, most people will be hearing us talking about it when it's out. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. So good luck with that, and um, thanks so much for your time. And obviously. Uh, such will be the success of this book that uh, <laughs> we look forward to number two um, uh, which you know who knows might be about uh, somewhere in Copenhagen who knows who knows, who yeah, knows? So thanks so much Ben thank you Job it's been right. really nice to talk to you thank you Ben it really is a brilliant book but before ordering online just consider supporting your local bookshop and get one ordered there once again, many thanks to my great new sponsor, Genus, the world's only brand of high-performance technical clothing specially designed by gardeners for gardeners. Do find time to have a look at their website at genus.gs. After you've looked at all the beautifully designed clothing, click on Blogs and then Gardening Community where you'll find several videos of me talking to Genus customers in their amazing and beautiful gardens. I can be found at joffelfic.co.uk and love hearing from you. Do send me a message with questions or anything relating to the show. If you enjoy podcasts but worry you may be missing out, again, on my website, I have a list and links for all the other UK gardening podcasts that you can listen to. If your favourite podcast is not on the list or you produce a UK podcast that I have not included, then let me know and I'll get it on the list straight away. If you're a member of a gardening club, do give them my details. I'll travel up to 50 miles from Sarancester in Gloucestershire to speak, and in return, you'll receive a warm, fuzzy feeling for helping out a fellow gardener. 
That's it, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. I'm off to order some seeds. In the meantime, may your secateurs be well honed, your magnolias particularly thermogenic, and your camellias free of sooty mould. I'll see you next time.